This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're highlighting the human services portion of Governor Kathy Hochul's budget proposal with Barbara Gwynn, Acting Commissioner for the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. Welcome to the show, Commissioner. Thank you for having me. So for starters, in terms of your area of expertise and the funding that uh, OTADA has oversight of, what stands out to you uh, from the governor's budget? So the governor's 25 budget includes a lot of funding for our core programs. We have a few new initiatives that I can certainly speak to, but I, I don't want to overlook some of the core programs. We do have a, you know, a budget of, of $10 billion, and that includes a lot of assistance that goes directly to needy individuals throughout the state. So that includes funds to support public assistance programs, funds necessary to administer the supplemental nutrition assistance program, home energy assistance, and other really key core services for low-income households throughout our state. In terms of new things for this year, one key addition from the governor this year is a $50 million investment in services and supports for three cities to reduce the rates of child poverty. So that would be funding to support efforts in Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse. Another really important um, is that there's funding in the budget to support a new summer electronic benefits payment transfer program or summer EBT program. And that program will allow us next year and hopefully continuing from that point forward to provide benefits to families in lieu of the meals that their children are no longer receiving during the summer months that they would have otherwise received through the federal free and reduced price school meals program. And then another important piece this year is there is significant funding to help New York City address the migrant crisis. Well, I want to start with that $50 million investment you highlighted for the three upstate cities that really have struggled with poverty in particular. I'm thinking of Rochester and Syracuse, which rank there, unfortunately, near the top nationally. How do you envision that funding being deployed? So the budget does specify that of the 50 million, 25 million will be allocated to support Rochester with 12.2 million each for Buffalo and Syracuse. And fortunately, the balance would be, we can use that to evaluate the effectiveness of the investment. So we will be providing a lot of flexibility to the locals in terms of identifying efforts that they would like to invest in with a couple of certain guardrails, I would say. So we we wanna make sure that this one-time investment makes a difference. So we would hope that the investments that the areas elect to fund would be things that either provide systems changes to improve access to benefits for the long-term or potentially just direct payments to meet individual family needs so that we can directly see what certain investments can do to support families to move from below poverty to out of poverty. Um, an example of that could be perhaps helping a family purchase a car. You know, that would be an easy example of something they may need to help them get to work and, you know, do other important activities, but they simply don't have the funds. And in terms of the implementation of this money, is this something where you think dollars can start flowing in this current fiscal year, or, or will you likely have to spend the 12 months after this is approved setting up regulations and taking requests for proposals, et cetera? Yeah, I would hope that we could begin to roll out 
services within this calendar year. Each of these areas have some local efforts underway already with respect to the convening of community members. And I think that's an important first step in terms of getting input from the community. Rochester in particular has had an anti-poverty group that has met consistently for years. And so I think they will be well prepared to identify early on efforts that they want to invest in to move forward. So we certainly don't want to have this be something that is a year of planning. We'd like it to be a much shorter ramp up period. Well, sticking with anti-poverty initiatives, the governor signed legislation committing the state to cutting child poverty in half over the next decade and an independent analysis of the governor's first two budgets that have been adopted since she took over in 2021 uh, estimate that the state has cut the poverty number by about 7% in those two years. When you think about this budget, what is it that will directly cut the child poverty rate in the coming fiscal year. You mentioned this targeted $50 million investment, but are there any other big swings or investments in existing proven programs that combat poverty that uh, you think are worth highlighting in terms of achieving that 50% reduction? I mean, I would say the summer EBT program that I mentioned certainly will have a direct impact on very low income households. So that's something that will begin this year. And like I said, hopefully continue every year thereafter. Another really important investment that's included in Governor Hochul's budget is the, uh, it's really within the Department of Health's budget, and that is the effort to obtain federal approval to allow continuous coverage, health coverage for children through the Medicaid and Child Health Plus program from zero to six years of age. This is something that many advocates in the child poverty space have certainly advocated for some time. And I think that, you know, helping those families stay connected to healthcare, making sure that they're receiving, you know, all the preventative as well as other care that they need without gaps in health insurance coverage is a game changer. And so certainly we, we find that as a priority. In addition to that, I would say the, the continued investment in childcare both with respect to grants to low-income families, but also investments to really try to revive that industry, which we all need to have in place and to be strong so that parents can, can go to work and feel you know, safe and comfortable that their children are in a safe setting where hopefully they're also advancing educationally. Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. We're talking about the governor's budget proposal with Barbara Gwynn, acting commissioner for the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. So if I have my calendar straight, the uh, Child Poverty Reduction Advisory Council is scheduled to meet on February 28th. And part of their responsibility is to assess the governor's budget proposal and weigh in on how it combats child poverty and what degree it actually does that. If they come back and say that this budget as proposed doesn't move the ball forward enough in terms of proportionately advancing our reduction towards that 10-year goal, is there wiggle room in the governor's budget and, and how she is willing to spend money to make additional investments like in things such as tax credits? Or when it comes to fighting poverty, is this probably as much as we're going to see based on the spending levels that the governor is committed to? Right. I certainly would need to defer to you know the governor's office and the legislature on how things will move forward with respect to 
you know, legislative negotiations, things often come out a little different than they were proposed. And hopefully those differences, you know, would all be steps in the right direction. Probably the most important work of our council is, is about to happen this year with respect to the child poverty reduction um, advisory council. This is the year that we are committed to making a series of recommendations of steps that we think are necessary to, to achieve that goal of 50% um, poverty reduction. And, you know, I think we, uh, myself and other other members of the council believe that child poverty can be reduced by 50%. And we have been working hard, both looking at studies, hearing from experts, and currently working with the Urban Institute that is helping us assess various policy proposals that would get us to that goal. Well, a popular means of addressing child poverty and really poverty more broadly are direct cash transfers. And in August of 2023, the state announced the pilot program to test the impact of direct cash payments uh, on future entanglements with the child welfare system, essentially testing whether poverty is uh, the reason for a lot of neglect cases. What's the status of that initiative? That initiative is being overseen by the Office of Children and Family Services. And I do believe they have begun to enroll families in the program, but there are no outcomes yet. But certainly, certainly agree that, you know, more money to low income families is is necessary to reduce poverty. Well, you just answered my next question, which was going to be, what do you think of the benefits of direct cash for transfers? So considering that you, you think there is merit to that idea and how they can be used to combat poverty, are there any explorations of how else direct cash transfers could be uh, attested in New York? I mean, I, I would consider the Empire State child tax credit as well as the federal child tax credit is another example of a way to transfer money to very low income households and certainly the tax child tax credits is something that the council is looking at closely certainly has gotten a lot of attention over the past couple of years in 2021 we had the lowest level of child poverty on record and when those investments went away, certainly we we saw those rates increase. So that is one mechanism. And, and I, I think that not only to provide the credit, but also to look at how the credit is structured to make sure that we are reaching the most disadvantaged households through, through an initiative such as that. Are there any pitfalls that you're wary of when it comes to either direct cash transfers or tax credits, which have the effect of just literally putting money into families' pockets? Um, I, I think, in my opinion, the the potential pitfalls are worth the the risk. I think that one is always concerned, and it's an important policy question to ask, if the government is providing this money, to what extent extent is that or is that not providing a disincentive for that household to work. I think that the employment impacts, you know, is certainly something that should be studied. And I do not believe that the child tax credits have had a significant negative impact on, on employment over the, over the years in terms of when it's been studied. But also if you look at the, the rates of the credits, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not enough to keep a family and to meet the family's basic needs throughout the year. It really is a supplement and so the way we would want to structure any policies is that families are, number one, able to meet their basic needs and that children are cared for. But number two, we certainly want to make those households that are able to work 
to be better off as a result of that employment effort. And after a quick break, we'll have more on the governor's budget proposal with Barbara Gwynn, acting commissioner of the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about the human services portion of Governor Kathy Hochul's budget proposal with Barbara Gwynn, acting commissioner for the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. Well, during the budget hearings in 2023, your predecessor was peppered with questions about benefits basically being stolen through so-called skimming procedures. What, if anything, has been implemented since that last round of questioning to uh, avoid having uh, benefits stolen? You know, the skimming of, of benefits continues. It is happening in New York and nationally. We have been able to take a couple of really important steps to both mitigate the theft, but also to help the victims. One step that we've taken that was just implemented actually this month was a feature that enables cardholders to to lock their their cards. So we are you know, undertaking a massive outreach campaign to make sure people are aware of that, that they go onto the app and that they block their card so that it cannot be used other than when, when they need to use it. So that's a primary way that they can protect their benefits. Last year's budget did in, include a provision that enabled us also to be able to replenish benefits for those who have had them stolen, not fully, but partially replenish them. And so that that has been some relief as a result of those legislative changes. Last summer, we spoke with your predecessor upon his uh, planned departure uh, about uh, the state's shelter allowance program, which at the time hadn't been updated in a meaningful way in terms of the rates of the benefits that are being calculated in over two decades. Where do things stand with that right now? Because I know there had been some hope from activists in this space that the state might reconsider what it's paying out to better reflect the rising costs of housing in the last two plus decades. Things are, are very much status quo. Those those grant levels have not been increased in, in many years. I can tell you that, you know, it's something that our agency is is concerned about with respect to the purchasing power of those benefits. It's also something that the Child Poverty Reduction Advisory Council, through one of its committees, it has a committee on public benefits as well as a committee on housing, each of which is is looking at this issue. We will be modeling kind of different options for how those benefits could change. And then also looking at if they were to increase, to what extent would that improve and reduce the rate of child poverty in our state? And in the case of something like the shelter allowance, if the funding isn't reflective of what it actually costs to secure housing, what ends up happening to the people who utilize that benefit? Do they end up costing the state even more money because of the state's responsibility to provide, say, emergency shelter? I mean, that that could be the case in some instances. While it isn't an across-the-board 
way of increasing grants. We do have authority where counties can request of our agency an increase in the shelter allowance. And as part of that application process, they can identify which households they are targeting. So that often could be those who may be facing eviction or are otherwise at risk of homelessness. So in those instances, they could provide an increased allowance if needed. We also have the ability through the public assistance program to pay arrears, not the ideal situation, you know, for people to get to a situation where they have rent arrears. But if that is the case, then they can also apply for additional grants to pay those arrears to their to their landlord to prevent them from eviction. So I want to pivot over to one of the three issues you highlighted initially, which is uh, the funding for the migrant crisis. What is your office's role in distributing funding because we often hear about this issue through the lens of New York City and it's what what it's doing. So can you talk about what the Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance uh, does? Yeah, sure. And and with respect to the the funds that are in the budget, the vast majority of that money is going to be used to reimburse costs that are incurred directly by the city. So efforts by the city to provide temporary emergency housing is really where the bulk of that that money will go. And so our agency would be responsible for processing those claims from the city. In, in addition to emergency housing, there are services provided through other agencies, you know, legal services and case management. Otherwise, our agency's role has been with the Migrant Relocation Assistance Program and attempting to help individuals who are residing in shelter in New York City to relocate to other parts parts of the state. And so that is a, a one program that we have up specifically to support the migrant effort. Do you have responsibility for inspecting shelters outside of New York City because the right to shelter outside of New York City typically falls on the state to implement and we don't necessarily expect the localities which have fewer resources than say New York City to handle this on their own? Our agency has responsibility for oversight of the shelters in New York City that are overseen by the Department of Homeless Services. So right now the Department of Homeless Services is housing a large number of the the migrants, in particular migrant families. And so we do have oversight of those shelters. We do not have oversight of the shelters that are being operated under the emergency context. Um, So many of those are being operated by health and hospitals. Um, You know, that said, we, you know, we have worked with the city with respect to kind of what our standards are for shelters and worked with health and hospitals as they, um, you know, have moved to open up, you know, s- some of the, the larger facilities just, you know, to make sure that people have a you know basic level of care. But we do not have regulatory oversight outside of the Department of Homeless Services shelter system. And what about homelessness more broadly outside of New York City? What is the office's role in that? And does this budget address that in any meaningful way, you think? With respect to homelessness, our, our agency certainly does play a role as, as you know, do m- many other agencies given kind of the multifaceted needs and nature of homelessness. So the budget includes money, you know, for, for the prevention of homelessness. We have programs uh, such as the Solutions to End Homelessness program that helps 
with respect to pre preventing homelessness, helping with rapid rehousing. We also are fortunate to oversee the legal services program that is targeted to help with housing court and keep people from being evicted. Um, and then also through the provision of rent arrears. So those are some ways that our agency supports on the prevention side. And then with respect to homeless housing and emergency housing, we reimburse um, counties for the provision of emergency housing. So it's both a funding and then also an oversight role where we do have oversight of emergency housing um, in New York City. So both DHS and New York City, but then also that that's operated by the county departments of social services throughout the state. Our agency has the Homeless Housing and Assistance Program that is responsible for the development of supportive housing. And so that effort, and then there are also supportive housing programs with respect to both capital development, but also you know the essential services and rent payments that are overseen by a, a number of different state agencies, sometimes depending on really the population that's being served. So that could include um, OMH, and then obviously HCR also oversees a number a, a number of um, areas of development for supportive housing as well. Well, finally, as I mentioned, you're the acting commissioner, and since I believe 2017, you've also had the role of executive deputy commissioner. So would you like to become the full-time commissioner, drop the word acting from the title? Oh, I'd be proud to do so if the, if the governor makes that decision. But either way, I'm committed to, to the, the goal of this agency. It's, it's certainly at the heart of what I care about. Well, we've been speaking with Barbara Gwynn. She is, at least for now, the acting commissioner for the State Office of Temporary and Disability Assistance. Barbara, thank you so much for making the time and good luck with the work moving forward. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Support for the Capitol Press Room is provided by New York State United Teachers, a statewide union of nearly 700,000 professionals in education and healthcare.